Good morning, y'all. Let's open uh, with prayer. The Lord be with you. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, send your Holy Spirit into our hearts to direct and rule us according to your will, to comfort us in all our afflictions, to defend us from all error, and to lead us into all truth. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Okay. Well, um, so where we are in the catechism is on um, question 172, which is on page 70. And uh, as you're, you're turning to page 70, let me just kind of offer some uh, reminders. Uh, we're entering into the season of Lent this week. Ash Wednesday is on Wednesday. And, um, and Lent is a time of entering into a spirit of discipline, of repentance, uh, of turning our hearts to God in preparation for, um, for Holy Week to remember his passion and to celebrate his resurrection. And um, we'll, we'll be doing different things during Lent, um, so the liturgy will change in different ways, and um, I can maybe talk about that when uh, uh, next Sunday. Uh, we'll enter a penitential rite, is what it's called. We'll open instead of with kind of the usual procession in and um, opening acclamation, we'll begin by processing around the church and reciting what's called the Great Litany, this kind of long prayer where we um, beg God's mercy for ourselves and for our world. Uh, We will uh, recite the uh, Ten Commandments, and uh, after each one, ask God's forgiveness and mercy for our breaking of them. It's it's a whole kind of um, uh, liturgical way of each Sunday remembering Uh, beginning the service, remembering our sins and and entering into confession before God. Um, But what I want to just remind you of is um, Lent is also an opportunity to take on personal uh, disciplines, Lenten disciplines. And the kind of traditional three types of Lenten disciplines that the church has practiced is uh, disciplines of prayer, of fasting, and almsgiving. Prayer, fasting, and almsgiving are like the three kind of like really, uh, really kind of solid traditional types of discipline during Lent. So um, consider uh, maybe one kind of discipline in each of those areas that you can take up during during Lent. So with prayer, I mean, a good one uh, that I always recommend is try to maybe take on praying morning prayer every day. Uh, or if not morning prayer, spending at least some time each morning in prayer reading the scriptures. Um, try to kind of take up a daily uh, discipline of prayer through this season of Lent. For um, fasting, the kind of typical uh, and traditional fasting days are Fridays, which uh, in Lent are remembrances of Jesus's death, and it's quite common to not eat meat uh, on Fridays, save for fish. Um, so you might consider this. You might consider picking a day, maybe Friday, maybe a Wednesday, um, to try to fast during a meal, um, and maybe fast till dinner time or something like this. Uh, or you can consider other kinds of fasting, of course, from things like social media, from uh, certain foods, or really anything that um, kind of, you know, is a kind of, uh, you know, coveted kind of little pleasure 
that we kind of uh, have to use as a crutch throughout our lives to, to bring us a kind of um, comfort, right? Think about maybe giving that up during the season of Lent and entering into a time of fasting um, and, and being with our Lord. And then finally, almsgiving. Um, I mean, be thinking about a way that you can give to those in, in need during this time. And that can be either financially, um, but probably more importantly, um, think of a way that you might be able to give of your time in service or of your heart in prayer um, to those who are in need, the poor, the vulnerable, the afflicted. So I'll hold those before you um, as maybe things to consider taking up during this Lent. Um, we'll have uh, a Shrove Tuesday celebration this coming Tuesday, uh, where we'll conclude uh, this season of Epiphany and prepare to enter into Lent. We'll eat pancakes together as a kind of tradition on Shrove Tuesday. And then from 6 to 8 uh, in the evening, Father Jonathan and I will be available here at the church uh, to hear confessions. One of us will be up here in the chancel. Uh, one will be in the um, small chapel back, kind of back here. So consider maybe this is a time that if you've never made a confession, you make your first confession. Um, it's a really great way to enter into Lent on the eve of Ash Wednesday to make a confession. And then on Ash Wednesday, uh, we'll begin Lent. We'll have services of the imposition of ashes on the forehead um, at 7, at 12, and at 6 p.m. So that's kind of what's on the horizon for, for beginning beginning Lent. Now, it's, I think it's a, an appropriate time then, this Lenten kind of uh, time that we're going to be making our way through the Lord's Prayer, um, which is a great kind of spiritual exercise to do during Lent, I, I think. Um, so um, just to kind of recall where we've been, been looking at the Lord's Prayer as a kind of um, a practice and a pattern of prayer. So as a prayer that we you know, pray often, um, in the liturgy, in the daily offices, in our personal lives, but also it's a pattern of prayer, meaning that it kind of lays a template for the whole of the life of prayer, indeed the whole spiritual life. And because that's the case, because it's a kind of pattern for the spiritual life, it's not just that the Lord's Prayer is a kind of good practical guide for prayer, it's, it's really kind of theologically dense, and so you've noticed that as we've been proceeding through some of these questions, we take up, you know, not just kind of practical spiritual uh, matters, but like deep theological ones, even kind of deeply metaphysical ones about the nature of God as Trinity and these sorts of things. And this is what I love about the Lord's Prayer, is that it's not only a kind of guide for praying, but it's also a really rich piece of theology. And I think you'll find this as we kind of move through these first uh, two petitions especially, um, that there's a lot of theology packed into the Lord's Prayer. And so we want to talk about both kind of that theology and its implications for, for the life of prayer. So let's jump into things. On uh, This is question 172. We'll enter into the first petition. So what is the first petition? The first petition is, hallowed be thy name. And then uh, question 173, what is God's name? God's name reveals who he is, his nature, his character, his power, and his purposes. 
The name God reveals to Moses is I am who I am, or simply I am. This name means that he alone is truly God, that he's a source of his own being, he is holy and just, and he cannot be defined by his creatures. Okay, I told you it's going to get theological pretty quickly. All right, so we're beginning um, with one of these kind of great mysteries of the Christian faith, the name of God. Uh, if you read kind of like theology, especially in the patristic and medieval periods, the name of God, and this is true not just in Christianity, but in Judaism and Islam as well, the name of God has always been a source of kind of really rich theological and philosophical reflection. Well, why? Well, in, in the Bible and just in the ancient world generally, names are really important. Not that they're not important now. Um, you know, we wouldn't, you know, parents wouldn't labor over, uh, you know, books of names to decide what to call their children if names were important. But often the way we kind of select names for people or um, change our names, right, it's kind of, um, it's a little bit more casual, right? We, we like a name because of how it sounds, you know? Um, and so we have like, you know, names that in any given kind of year are trending because they're kind of popular, good sounding names, apparently, you know. Um, in the ancient world, it's not really like this, right? Um, names aren't chosen because of uh, how they sound, but because they're a kind of promise given to a child to live into, right? A name is, uh, has deep meaning and it's going to be something that's going to be wrapped up in one's kind of identity in a real, a real sense. Um, names kind of, um, when one shares one's name in the ancient world, this is a deeply intimate act, right? Because you're not just kind of knowing what to call someone, but you're, you're knowing someone, something about one's character, right? Um, and this is why in the Bible, after really momentous events in people's lives, their names often change because their identity has changed, right? Think of Abram, who enters into covenant with God and thus receives a new name, Abraham, right? Um, this happens often. Uh, think about um, Simon Peter, right? Uh, Paul, right? Saul, who after his conversion becomes Paul, right? Uh, these kinds of name changes mark uh, changes in one's character and one's identity, right? And to know someone's name in the ancient world was to be granted a kind of access or kind of personal intimacy with them, right? Which is why it's so kind of amazing when we enter this moment at Mount Sinai where Moses, you know, he's been wandering in the desert um, and he, um, sorry, not Mount Sinai. Uh, actually, this is not at Mount Sinai, right? This is at Mount Tabor, is it? Or Moses receives the, di the divine name. Anyone want to help me here? Horeb. Mount Horeb, where Moses is kind of wandering around, right? And he hears uh, a voice call out to him. He turns and he sees this, this burning bush that's, that's on fire, but it's not being consumed. And he enters into this moment with God, right? In which God reveals the divine name. Which, interestingly enough, it seems to have not really been done up until this point. God is kind of for the first time in this moment in Exodus chapter 3 revealing um, his personal name, right, uh, to Moses. And this will be the name that Israel will call God 
from here on out. After they've been liberated from, from slavery in Egypt, they enter in this deeply personal relationship with God, which they know God's first name, we might say, right? And what is that name? Yahweh, right? Um, we call this the tetragrammaton uh, because it is, uh, it's never said aloud in, um, in Judaism and in, in Israel. That's uh, a holy name, Yahweh. Uh, kind of hard to translate. Um, I am who I am or simply I am or sometimes it's translated I will be who I will be. Um, this name is uh, it's a deeply mysterious. We might even think of it as a kind of apophatic name, right? Uh, God gives God's name to Moses, uh, but it's not a name that is really clearly intelligible. It's a kind of mystery, even though uh, it's, it's given, right? Um, it's a name that in, in Judaism and in ancient Israel was said once a year, during the Day of Atonement. Uh, and it's because this name is holy. It's God's personal personal name. You'll see it, uh, you know, never written in Judaism, written out, but uh, abbreviated, you know, Y-H-W-H, right? And in our English Bibles, um, when this term, this personal name of God, Yahweh, is used, it's going to be listed as LORD in all caps, so, I don't know if you ever noticed this, like in the Old Testament, you'll have, you know, someone referring to, say, David as Lord, and it'll be maybe capital L, maybe lowercase. Um, maybe they'll refer to God as Lord and say, Book of Genesis or something like this, capital L, lowercase O-R-D, as a kind of title. But Yahweh, God's personal name, is written in our English Bibles as a capital L and then kind of lower, smaller, but all caps type O-R-D. And whenever you see that in scripture, you know that what's being referred to is not just a title of God, right? A holy one, uh, Lord, creator, things like this, but God's personal covenantal name, Yahweh, right? Um, and here, the, the, the way it's translated um, in most English Bibles and in the catechism is I am who I am. God's name means simply I am. Um, and this is a name that has led many people to reflect deeply upon. I think the best kind of way of thinking about what this name means is uh, comes from St. Thomas Aquinas, who says that God's essence, God's being, I am, is the sheer act of existence itself. The sheer act of existence or being itself. Um, that's what it means for God to simply say, I am, right? I am being, or my existence and essence are identical. I am sheer being itself, the source of all being, right? Um, I also like, though, the way that some um, translations of, of the Bible will render this, um, this divine name, I will be who I will be, which captures this kind of future sense, right, which uh, I think actually might be closer to, to the Hebrew. Um, and in this sense, God, what God may be saying to Moses is, uh, if you want to know my name, if you want to know who I am, right, you got to kind of wait and find out, 
right? Because my identity will be revealed in saving history of Israel, right? And redemption in my covenantal faithfulness to my people, right? I will be who I will be for you, right? And of course, this is true for us kind of um, who read scripture, right? The, the divine identity, God's character is revealed not in kind of abstract propositions, you know, sheer act of existence itself is a cool kind of way of talking about God, but, you know, what's better? Uh, reading the story of God's uh, redemption of God's people, Israel, and then God come among us incarnate in Jesus, right? I will be who I will be. That's what God's name means is uh, I will be uh, God to my covenant people. Uh, we have some kind of uh, further elaboration here about what this could mean. So this name means that God alone is truly God. Um, God is the single source of all being, all existence, right? Um, it comes from him alone, right? And because it comes from him alone, because he's the source of all that is, right? He alone is God, right? This would be the kind of claim of monotheism, that there's a single source of existence and it rests in God who is existence itself, right? And then there's a kind of correlate to this, right? He is the source of his own being, right? If, if God is the source of all being that there is, he also is the source of his own being. We call this in theology divine aseity, that God is not dependent on something else for his existence, but is the kind of, he, he's self-subsisting, right? Um, this is actually important. So it's not as if there's this kind of general category, general concept of being, right, existence, and then, you know, God is an example of that, and we're examples of that, and we all kind of share in this. No, everything that is shares in God by its existence, right, because it comes forth from God. There's nothing, in other words, that is, that doesn't come from God and have some sort of relationship of participation in God by virtue of its coming forth from God, right? Sometimes we, we, I think it's right to think about this, of all creation, insofar as it comes forth from God in creation, right, exists kind of in some way within God's presence, right? There's no part of creation that's apart from God, right? Um, right? And this is uh, different from saying something like, well, what, like um, maybe something like pantheism, right? Which is like the, the world and God are like the same thing. This is di way different than that. This is saying the world creation, it's a small part of what participates in God, right? So we have this, this sharp distinction between the creator and the creation, right? And we always want to keep that in mind, right? Whatever there is in the world, you can always divide up on either side of a line, right, of creator and creation, or infinite and finite, right? Um, and there's only one thing on this side, God, right? And everything else that exists is on this side. And that's an important distinction to always keep in mind, right? Um, because the difference between the creator 
the infinite, right, God, and the creation, the finite, right, is this. Everything in this category depends on something else for its existence, right? In material terms, right, we depend on food, oxygen, parents birthing us, but most fundamentally for our existence itself, God, right? But God does not depend, God's being doesn't depend on anything, right? It's unconditioned being, right? That's what Thomas means when he says the sheer act of being itself, right? Okay, so he's, uh, he, God possesses a saity, self-subsisting. He's not dependent, right? He's entirely free. God doesn't have to do anything, right? Everything that God does is done in freedom, right? Out of love. God is not conditioned. He's the unconditioned, right? All of this is just wrapped up in this one name, right? God's personal name, uh, Yahweh. But it goes on. He is holy and just, right? Set apart, unique, right? There is only one person like this, right? God alone is self-subsisting. God alone is the source of all that is. And so he is holy, right? Holy just means to be set apart, to be separate from, right? God is transcendent, right? And here's the kind of effect of this um, or the result of the consequence of this he cannot be defined by his creatures. This is a really interesting thing because this is in the question where we've been told God's personal name, right? You would think that this might be at least one kind of way that we can say something about God that really gets at the definition of God, right? And yet uh, we read here that God cannot be defined by his creatures. Even the names God gives us to call God have a limit, they don't kind of capture the divine essence, right? They can't define God, right? No matter how good or precise our language, our theological concepts are for God, they never define, they never capture. In the way that we can speak about created things, material things, in a way that can really kind of capture what they are, right? Um, that's not how language works with God. Language works kind of entirely different when we, when we think about God. Actually, the, the way we, we uh, talk about this is by speaking about the principle of analogy, right? That everything we say about God, it kind of relates to God or ascribes to God, um, not in a straightforward sense, but in a kind of analogical sense, Right? It's why, for instance, whenever we talk about God, we should always be unsaying as much as we're saying, right? I talked about this a little bit, I think, last week when we talked about how God is a father, right? It's this kind of miracle that we can call God father, but we always have to begin unsaying what we mean by that as soon as we say it, because God is not like fathers in all kinds of ways, right? Even things like saying... Um, that God is just, right, which we, we read here, right? This is something we can affirm of God, right? Um, but only analogically so. We have to also say how he's not like human justice, right? Um, so this is kind of speech about God is frail, in other words, right? It never captures God. Um, at best, it can kind of barely touch God, 
and only because of God's grace, right? So all of this is wrapped up in the divine name that God gives to, to Moses, um, I am who I am. It emphasizes both, on the one hand, God's total transcendence, right, that he is beyond all that there is, right, source of being itself, right, and also that that transcendent God who would be unknowable apart from his revelation, right, has entered into a personal relationship with God's people, one so intimate that he even gives us his first name, right, his, his own name, Yahweh, right? And, and this is the story of the Bible, right? This kind of paradox of God's utter transcendence and total nearness or imminence, right? Okay, so uh, that's God's name. Uh, it's not God's only name in the scriptures. So question 174 what are some other names for God given in Scripture? Throughout the Scriptures, God is known as Lord. Through the person and ministry of Jesus Christ, God is also revealed to be one God and three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Okay, and these are, of course, only just a few names of God. There are, are many names of God in Scripture. Um, I know, like, growing up in my kind of... Uh, my kind of uh, rural Baptist church, there was this, this video that they would show, I feel like, once a year in church. And it was this video of all the names of God being projected on a screen with, like, um, a kind of preacher just, like, getting carried away in 10 minutes just saying all the names of God. Some of you probably know this video. It's really quite kind of cheesy. But uh, you get the idea. It's like once you kind of start thinking about the names of God, it's nearly endless, Right? Um, and yet there are some kind of core names that God is consistently called throughout the scriptures. Uh, aside from Yahweh, from Lord kind of capitalized, there is Lord in this sense of a of title, right? Um, Lord as uh, one who has a relationship to creation uh, as its governor, right? This is kind of Lord in this sense, right? That God is king to creation, Lord. It's both kind of like a political kind of uh, analogy here, right? God governs creation, um, uh, but it's also Lord in this sense too that, um, you know, in the household, right, servants would have a Lord, right, that they are accountable to. God is Lord in this way too. It's interesting. Um, in, in the Old Testament, God is quite He's consistently called this um, Israel's Lord. But then even in the New Testament, um, this term, kurios is the Greek term, uh, Lord, which is a divine title, right? It's also the one used consistently to speak about Jesus, kurios, right? The one that's uh, used for God, the Lord, in the Old Testament is also used for Jesus. And especially the Gospel of Luke, Sometimes people say that like the, the synoptic gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke have a kind of, sometimes they call it like a low Christology or an undeveloped Christology, whereas the gospel of John is, has this very elevated way of talking about Jesus as the divine son of God, the word, the logos, whereas Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they don't really use that language. They talk about Jesus as a prophet, as a miracle worker, right? And there's some truth to that, right? The Gospels speak about Jesus' identity in different ways, but what's often missed is the way that especially these, um, these 
these Hebrew, these Jewish gospel writers like Matthew right, and Mark will speak about Jesus in the same way that they would have spoken about Yahweh in the Old Testament as a Lord. The Gospel of Luke does this as well, speaks about Christ as Yahweh incarnate, right, by calling him Lord, because only God is Lord. Okay, and then finally, what's revealed in the person and ministry of Jesus that is not evident straightforwardly in the Old Testament to Israel is that Yahweh, the one single source of all that is, right, the kind of single um, principle of creation also is three, right? Without compromising the one, right, God is also three, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The text cited here in parentheses of the two, the first one, Matthew 28, 19, this is the Great Commission. And there are a few moments in the Gospels in which um, there is kind of uh, uh, an opening where you see um, the kind of triune identity of God at work, right? Father, Son, and Spirit all together. Because what does Jesus do, right, before he ascends, he commissions his disciples to baptize, not in his name alone, right, but in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And this, of course, becomes the core baptismal formula that Christians baptize with even to this day. They baptize in the name of, of God, right? So in Jesus's ministry, in his teaching, in his life, and then in his death, resurrection, and ascension, is revealed that Yahweh, right, uh, is also triune. Okay, uh, let's keep going to 175. Um, what does hallowed mean? Hallowed means to be treated as holy, set apart, sacred, and glorified. Okay, that's an old-fashioned word, hallowed. Um, but uh, when we hallow something, we recognize its sacred worth, its holy nature, that it's special, it's, it's set apart. When we hallow God's name, what we're saying essentially is this, um, thinking about holiness as being set apart, right, or different, right? We're saying, God, you are not like us. That's kind of like the first affirmation in hallowing God's name. It's to say, God, you are not like us. You are transcendent. You are set apart. You are holy, right? You are unlike us. I mean, think about, this is an important, I think, uh, aspect of prayer, right? Uh, it's not insignificant, I think, that the first petition of the Lord's Prayer is to acknowledge God's difference from us, God's set apart, because think about Think about some of the portrayals of the gods in the ancient world, in ancient literature. I, um, for, for a while, I, and I sometimes will teach um, in the great text department at Baylor, and I'll teach um, Homer and Virgil and these um, you know, depictions of uh, the gods, which, uh, while, while great literature, no doubt, um, are pretty funny in how they depict the gods. The gods in Greek and Latin literature uh, 
are not different from humans, except maybe in that their vices are more, are more excessive, right, than the humans. Uh, the gods in the Iliad, right, the gods um, in the Aeneid, right, uh, are not unlike human beings. They're just like them, except kind of worse. Right? Um, they they go around with their own, you know, dramas. They you know live in rumors and quarrels. Right? They're constantly betraying one another. Uh, they're committing acts of infidelity. I mean, they're just they're humans, but kind of on a larger scale. Right? Judaism and Christianity are fundamentally different in this way. Right? God is totally different from human, from creation, right? And when we hallow God's name, that's essentially what we're recognizing from the very beginning. God, you are not like us. You are not like this creation. You are different, right? It's to recognize God being set apart. Now, okay, here's an important distinction, though. Um, when we hallow God's name, we need to remember we're not the ones making it holy, right? So this is the next question, which is, how does God hallow his name? God's name is holy in itself, and God glorifies his name by saving fallen humanity, by building his church, and by establishing his kingdom in this world and in the age to come. So when we hallow God's name, in prayer, we're recognizing it as holy, but we're not making it holy. Like, God doesn't need us to hallow his name, right? God can do that quite well on his own. In fact, he doesn't have to do anything for it to be hallowed, right, for it to be holy. It is. It is holy in its essence, right? God's name is holy in itself. Nevertheless, God, and this is a really fascinating aspect of the drama of, of the scriptures, God is always kind of entering into uh, the events of history in order to glorify his name, right? It seems not enough for God to just kind of allow his name to be holy. God wants his name to be known and hallowed by others, right? Um, and so how does he glorify his name? Uh, through his saving works, right? By saving fallen humanity. I mean, what's this? There's this kind of uh, repeated phrase throughout the Old Testament, right? For the sake of your name, O Lord, right? Do this. Appeals will be made to God, right? For your name's sake, right? Save us, right? And, and what, what Israel is saying, what the Psalms will, will be invoking when they do this, right, is that God's reputation is tied up in his, in his saving uh, work in Israel, Right? And there's always that worry in Israel, right? That if God doesn't save, maybe the nations will think less of God's name, right? Maybe they'll think that God isn't good, right? And so there's this, this plea always, save God, save us for the sake of your name, right? Make your name great among the nations. Okay, so that's, we can think of uh, God kind of saving throughout um, the Old Testament, especially, and in Jesus as a way of glorifying his name, but then also by building his church, right? That is, those who are baptized into his name, right? This is the kind of significance of being baptized in the Trinitarian name is that we're kind of made to wear God's name in the world, right? 
It's why we make this sign of the cross in the name of the Trinity, right? We mark our bodies with the divine name, the Trinitarian name of God, and we become bearers of God's name in the world, right? God actually is kind of willing to risk the, his reputation with us in this way, right? Um, to say, uh, I'll be known, my character will be known uh, based on your witness, right? Um, that's a scary thought, I think, because uh, most of the time we seem to be kind of defaming the name of God, right? Uh, but this is kind of the riskiness of, of God in his covenantal relationship with us. He says, you can bear my name, right, uh, in the world, um, and we better take that seriously, right, that we're, we're representatives of the divine name in the world by building his church, and then finally by establishing his kingdom, right? Uh, this would have been a kind of obvious, obvious reference in the biblical world, especially in the New Testament, that God's kingdom and his name are wrapped up together just like Caesar's name is wrapped up with the success of the empire, right? Um, as, the, as the Roman Empire expands, right, so does the name of Caesar, right? Uh, it's plastered everywhere, right? He's, his statue is held up in every place. His name is on every coin, right? The success of the empire uh, is wrapped up with the reputation of, of the Caesar. Well, so with the kingdom of God, right? The, the building of God's kingdom is the way in which his name is made, made known. So that's how God hallows his own name. But as I said, he also welcomes us into this practice of hallowing his name with him. So how can you hallow God's name? I can honor God's name as holy by worshiping him, serving others, and living in loving obedience as his child and a citizen of his kingdom. Right? So I can honor God's name as holy by worshiping him, this seems the most obvious and kind of biblical way, right? Have you noticed that in the Psalms, um, in especially the Old Testament, one act of worship of God is to praise God's name. That's kind of like a, I don't know, it's like a trite formulation that we don't think that much about, I think, right? Uh, we hear it in songs all the, all the time, Right to praise God's name, but it's kind of, kind of odd. The more you start to think about it, right? Why are we not praising God? Why are we praising His name? Right. Well, maybe think of it. Um, think of it in uh, kind of with analogy to like the kind of poetic tradition, uh, the way in which you know a person who writes a love sonnet is going to um, write of someone's name and and declare it and honor it in in song and in in poetry um as a way of kind of honoring the person right the name and the person's identity are wrapped up together right and so speaking of one's name is another way of speaking about the character of someone right same with the psalms right when we praise the name of the lord right we're praising god's character right as it's been manifested in history so by worshiping him but by serving others right um god is never 
satisfied simply with the worship of him that is divorced from care of his people, especially the most vulnerable among them, right? This is the theme throughout the Old Testament of I desire not sacrifice, right? But for you to care for the orphan, for the widow, for the vulnerable, right? By serving others is actually a way that we hallow God's name, right? Because they're his his creatures. And then finally, in living and loving obedience as his child and as a citizen of his kingdom, um, those who are parents know um, that your children's behavior uh, you feel responsible for, right? Um, if your children is at, if your child is acting out in public, um, it's not like you can say, well, that's their problem. They're embarrassing themselves, right? You know, uh, I'll, I'll just kind of let them make a fool of themselves by crying in the store or whatever. No, you're, you feel like, oh, this is embarrassing me, right? I'm responsible for this, right? Children reflect the character of their parents, whether we like that or not, right? Now, it's not to say that, like, parents are entirely responsible for every decision their children make, right? Children have, and especially as they grow, have a responsibility of their own. Um, but children, right, in public, um, witness to the character of their parents, right? And so with God, right? The character of God's children is to reveal the character of God himself, right? Um, I'm reminded of this, this kind of uh, something that Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote where he would write about how Christians are salt and light, right? And um, uh, what Bonhoeffer would say is to, you know, to his church is that you don't get to decide whether or not to be the light, to be um, God's salt in the world. You are that, right? Either you are doing it right? You're being it or you're living in contradiction to it, right? So the same here, like we bear God's name in the world. There's no kind of like ridding ourselves of that responsibility. We're either defaming the name or we're glorifying it, right? There's no kind of middle ground, right? Every moment of every day, we're either glorifying God's name to his world uh, or we're living in contradiction to it, right? We're defaming it. Okay, so that's hallowing God's name. Let's do the, the second petition and see, then we'll go through the second petition and, and kind of maybe leave it um, there. So what is the second petition? The second petition is thy kingdom come. Okay, and then next page, question 179. What is God's kingdom? The kingdom of God is the just and peaceful reign of Jesus Christ over all the world especially in the lives of his faithful people throughout the powerful work of the Holy Spirit. Okay. You, of course, know that the, the phrase kingdom of God or kingdom of heaven is one of the most used phrases in the Gospels. It's what Jesus is always um, proclaiming, right? Actually, it's, in, it's impossible to understand the gospel, right, the good news that Jesus is proclaiming, apart from the kingdom of God, because that's what the good news is about, right? It's always in the gospels, the good news of the kingdom of God, right? The kingdom of God is what the gospel is all about. What is it? It's the reign of Jesus over the whole world, 
So this is, whenever we think about the kingdom of God, we always have to be thinking in kind of paradox. Because the kingdom of God is, you know, the, the kind of um, famous language is, it's always already and not yet, right? It's always here and to come. And this is very important for thinking about the kingdom and what it means to pray for God's kingdom to come. We're not praying for something that is not already here to come. We're praying for something that is already here to be manifested in its fullness, to be consummated. So we think about the kingdom, uh, the reign of, of Jesus, in different modes, we might, we might say, right? So the kingdom of God, of course, is already here in Jesus' life and ministry, in his death and resurrection. In fact, that is the clearest example we have of the kingdom of God, is Jesus' own life, his own person, right? The king amongst us, right? So the kingdom came, right, in Jesus. It's always coming, in the present, right, through the work of God's church, right, which Christ as the ascended one at the right hand of the Father oversees rules from his throne. So it's, it was already arrived, it's always arriving, and it is to arrive, right? It is to come at Christ's coming again, right? That will be the consummation, the full flowering of his kingdom. Sometimes, uh, we refer to the church as the sacrament of the kingdom. Now, I think this captures it. Like, what are sacraments, right? There are ways in which God's salvation is realized in this world. Not fully, though, right? I mean, God saves us, but salvation is to come, right? God is going to fully redeem all creation. So sacraments are a kind of, sometimes, if you want to really kind of technical $10 theological word. It's a proleptic participation, right, in God's ultimate redemption of all things. Yeah, throw that term out at a cocktail party or something like this. Proleptic participation. It's a fun, it's a fun one. Um, the kingdom of God comes in the lives of his people and not in their individual behavior primarily, but in the people of God, namely the church, right? The church is to be an embodiment of the kingdom of God, right? A sacrament of the kingdom of God. And lest you think that that is like just way too tall of an order, <laughs> because you read the gospels and you read that the kingdom of God uh, is one of, you know, peace reigning, um, of, you know, um, uh, of the, the poor and the vulnerable being, being lifted up, of, of Christ transforming this world, and you think that is just not happening in the church today, right? Well, here's the good news, right? It's not something that you have to go out and do, right? It's primarily the work of the Holy Spirit, right? Um, the kingdom of God is not a, it's not a social program, right? It's a pneumatological reality. It's the work of God's spirit in his church, right? I mean, you can think about the way that God's spirit had always been tied to something like God's kingdom in scripture. Think about like 
Israel's monarchy even, the kings, right, were anointed by the prophets to receive God's spirit in order to rule justly, which of course they rarely did, right? Uh, Israel's kingdom was only a, a kind of imperfect image uh, of the kingdom of God, right? Jesus comes as king and is baptized, right? Uh, the spirit descends on him, right? In this kind of this analogous way to the way that Saul, for instance, was anointed by the prophet to receive God's spirit to rule. Now Jesus receives the spirit to rule his kingdom, right? And what is kind of the manifestation of Christ's rule and reign primarily in his church, right? Of course, it's over all creation. Christ rules the whole creation. But his people, right, the citizens of his kingdom are his people, the church, those who are baptized into his name. Okay, got three more. Let's, let's, uh, let's keep going. Uh, 180, when you pray for God's kingdom to come, what are you asking? I pray that the whole creation may be renewed and restored under its rightful Lord, now in part and fully in the age to come. So again, here's this language of already, not yet. It's here, it is to come, right? And what is to come? What is the kingdom that is to come, the consummation of the kingdom, right? It is the renewal and redemption of this creation, right? This is the, this is the miracle of the kingdom of God, right? It's, I think it's, it's the mystery that's in the parables of Jesus, right? What the kingdom of God is, is God working within his fallen creation to transform it, to reweave it, to renew it, right? That creation may be renewed and restored. In other words, the kingdom of God is new creation. That's the language that Paul will use uh, in the book of Romans especially. And that new creation it is perfected at the end of time, right? The age to come. But when the kingdom is manifesting now in this world, it's always because that future reality is breaking in, right? This is actually what we mean by the term apocalyptic, uh, which is a kind of scary term, right? We often think of like, you know, end of the world movies when we think about apocalyptic. Really what apocalyptic means is God's future breaking in now, right, rupturing into this old creation that's been imprisoned by sin and setting it free, right, renewing it and pulling it towards its eternal destiny. Okay, 181, how does God's kingdom come? God's kingdom is announced to the people of Israel, arrives in Jesus Christ, and advances through the church's mission. It will appear in its fullness once Christ returns in glory. So we have, you know, again, this kind of temporal uh, manifestation of God's kingdom. It's prefigured in Israel. Um, the kingdom of Israel, the monarchy, uh, is certainly, you know, if it does anything, if it reveals anything, it reveals what the kind of inverse of God's kingdom will be like, right? Especially in its later kind of stages as it becomes more and more corrupt. What it does is it pushes God's people to realize that the only 
true king, the only king that's really going to work for God's people, uh, is not someone that we just kind of appoint, right, and uh, elect uh, or, or set aside as king. It has to be Yahweh himself. It has to be God himself, right? That's the kind of story of the Old Testament, right? God's saying, I'll let you have a kingdom, right? But it's only going to make you realize how bad it is to have a human rule it, right? And going to just push you to realize your deep need for me, God, to rule as king. And then when God comes in the flesh in Jesus, right, the king comes among his people to establish his kingdom, right? It arrives in Jesus, the kingdom, because Jesus is the king, right? It advances through the church's mission. You might say, I think, through the church's worship and mission, right? Because what we do on Sunday mornings is we're actually living in the kingdom. We're worshiping the king, right? That's kind of an essential part of participating in a kingdom, right, is showing worship, honor to the king when he's in your presence, right? But also by going out and making that kingdom known, by extending it in the world. And of course, it will come in its fullness when Christ the king returns in glory. Okay, last last question in this petition. How do you live in God's kingdom? As a citizen of God's kingdom, I am called to live in obedience with God's word and will, in loving witness and service to others, and in joyful hope of Christ's return. So I think this is important. To live as a citizen of the kingdom of God means to recognize both the king, Jesus, and the king's rule which is not just a kind of personal governing, right? But it actually has laws, right? Every kingdom has uh, laws that are given to structure that kingdom. And Christ is no different, right? He gives a new law, right? Uh, we see this, say, in the Sermon on the Mount, right? Where Christ gets up on the mount and delivers a new law like Moses did, right? But this time not a Decalogue, but... Uh, a version of that law that's centered on him, right? To live as citizens of the kingdom means to follow God's law, right? Um, it means to exist in service for others. The kingdom of God is always for the nations. It's evangelistic, essentially, right? It's not primarily about rule, right? Um, especially not about our rule, um, right? But it's about service to others. And it's all done. And this is the important thing that I think I want to kind of conclude on. The pursuit of the kingdom of God in this world always has to be done in hope. Hope is actually, I might want to say, the virtue which sustains our seeking the kingdom of God in this world. And here's why. The kingdom of God will never fully come in this world, right? It is, it's, its full consummation lies on the, at the end of history, on the other side, right? And that can be kind of deflating, right? To work for something that will never arrive, right? Unless you're empowered by the Holy Spirit and by the Spirit's virtues of faith, hope, and love to endlessly commit yourself to seeking God's kingdom in part, right? That's what the kind of Christian life and Christian mission is about. It's 
It's to kind of stake one's entire life on seeking God's kingdom now, even knowing it will always be arriving in part, and never being disappointed by that, but always living in hope of its full consummation. Okay, so I think we'll leave it, we'll leave it there for now, and next week we'll come back and we'll look at the third and the fourth petitions. So uh, we'll begin worship in a few minutes.